0: Welcome to the AVA Journal Legal Rebels podcast, where we talk to men and women who are remaking the legal profession, changing the way the law is practiced, and setting standards that will guide us into the future.
1: Hello, and welcome to the Legal Rebels Trailblazers podcast. I'm Jason Taché, legal affairs writer for the American Bar Association Journal, and today we have with us Bob Litt of counsel at Morrison & Forrester and their national security and global risk and crisis management practices. But just just his current title, uh, and he has a slew of them from where he's been up until this point, which includes uh, general counsel for the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. Uh, Before that, he was the Deputy Assistant Attorney General uh, at the Criminal Division at the DOJ, as well as the Principal Associate Deputy Attorney General of the DOJ. And he started off his career clerking for Supreme Court Justice Potter Stewart and was an Assistant U.S. Attorney in the Southern District of New York. Bob, it's great to have you with us.
2: Thanks, Jason. I appreciate it.
1: Now, we're going to talk about a number of topics today. Your career has covered uh, two administrations, both for the Clinton administration and most recently, the Obama administration. But you've done a lot of work around cybersecurity, uh, encryption, and national security issues. And so I want to start talking about cybersecurity. The journal uh, this year is doing a year-long series on cybersecurity and law issues. So I feel like it's timely that we're having this conversation. So where I want to start is that since the 2016 election, the media has increased its attention uh, to the international nature of cyber threats our government, citizens, and domestic corporations face. Uh, However, the start of heavy media coverage is rarely uh, the beginning of a particular issue. I was curious, with your longitudinal perspective, how long have we been battling with this type of international interference?
2: Well, when you say this type of international interference, obviously, within the last year, uh, there has been a lot of attention focused on Russian interference in our electoral process. And as the intelligence community assessment that was released in January uh, made clear, while there's always been some degree of Russian attention to our electoral processes, what happened in the 2016 election cycle was Several orders of magnitude more dangerous and more serious than anything that happened before. So, to that extent, what we're seeing is new. On the other hand, We've been facing international cybersecurity threats almost as long as we've had an Internet. There has been a concern that uh, foreign either state actors or individuals were going to be uh, hacking into our systems for one purpose or another. And so it's been a decades-long problem, and it's a good thing now that within the last year or two, it's finally been getting the attention it deserves.
1: So you point out this discussion currently, and rightly so, is about Russian interference in the election. However, uh, you edited a document for your firm entitled, Our Insights into the Risk and Crisis Landscape, where you talk about number of different international cyber threats. I was wondering if you'd give us a broader perspective on who these threats are, what they want, and and what they're actually threatening in the United States.
2: There are several different kinds of threat actors. Um, You have uh, nation states that are acting for national purposes of one form or another. You have uh, criminal organizations that are seeking profit in the same way that any criminal organization does. Um, And then you have uh, what are called hacktivists, who are people who are simply trying to uh, cause problems on the Internet. And there are a variety of different activities that they're engaged in. They range from sort of traditional espionage being conducted over the Internet, where foreign adversaries are trying to break into our national security systems and steal our secrets, to economic espionage. Uh, where they are trying to steal the intellectual property of American companies, and there are estimates running into the hundreds of billions of dollars for the losses of intellectual property that have occurred in this case, to criminals who are seeking to steal private information, which they can then sell to people for identity theft purposes, or uh, criminals who are employing ransomware these days, which is... Uh, a malicious program that essentially locks up your computer unless you are willing to pay ransom to them, Um, to people who are simply stealing information for the purpose of exposing it. And we saw this, for example, with the Panama Papers or other sorts of dumps of information. So there's a wide variety of threats that have occurred so far. Going forward, there are risks that many people are very concerned about, including possible attacks on infrastructure uh, or on financial institutions or on the very framework of the Internet itself. There was one attack recently, a denial of service attack, uh, that essentially froze part of the Internet for a brief period of time. Um, And so there are a wide range of things to be concerned about and a wide range of actors to be concerned about.
1: So let me ask this. A lot of these attacks, some that you'd mentioned and others like the hack of uh, the federal government's OMB, uh, Office of Management and Budget, as well as the recent uh, national security software that was leaked online, create uh, very bombastic headlines. Should we be worried?
2: So it was the Office of Personnel Management, not OMB, that I think you're referring to.
1: Oh, excuse me. Thank you. Uh,
2: Yes, we absolutely should be worried. One of the problems with cybersecurity is that the offense is way ahead of the defense and in all likelihood always will be unless there are sort of fundamental changes in how the Internet works. And so everybody has to assume that sooner or later they're going to be the victim of a hack and to be prepared for how to deal with that so the answer is yes we should all be worried
1: and so i guess at a fundamental level the question should be asked is it possible to have a safe internet
2: well i think it depends upon what you mean by a safe internet and i I guess i would draw the analogy to highways Mm -hmm. a lot of people are killed in traffic accidents but our highways are essential to us and we accept the risks because it's of this kind of transportation and i think you need to make the same analogy to the internet and the question is can we manage the risks and the damage accepting that there is always going to be a certain amount of risk inherent in it but can we manage it in a way where the benefits uh, continue to outweigh the costs and i think that requires everybody to be vigilant, and to take the uh, appropriate precautions.
1: And so then, uh, to this point of managing the risk, is that even possible?
2: I think so. I think people who, uh, number one, use the best security techniques. Um, Number two, prepare in advance for what you will do if you are hacked how to limit the damage and contain it and be resilient and, uh, and deal with it as quickly as possible. Yes, I think it is possible to manage the risk. But it does, as I said, require uh, people to be attentive to the problem and to be constantly focusing on it.
1: So I want to shift slightly. Uh, at the beginning of this discussion about cybersecurity, we talked a little bit about, or you talked about uh, state actors as being one of the potential adversaries. And I'm curious about at what point, if any, do these state-backed hacks transform into an act of war?
2: So I have a fairly narrow and precise definition of what it, what is an act of war. Um, one of the things that uh, I uh, enjoyed the most about my time as the Office of Director of National Intelligence was my exposure to issues involving the law of armed conflict, which I really had not had a lot of exposure to before that. But to me, the term an act of war connotes something that entitles you to use force in response. Now, I know the term is used more colloquially to mean something that is really bad done to us. But to me, calling something an act of war means that we are entitled to invade the country that did it in reaction to it. And I don't think that in most cases, ordinary hacking that simply involves theft or damage to information uh, or even interference in elections is going to rise to that level. Now if somebody took out of operation a dam and caused flooding that killed many people, or if somebody caused extensive physical damage, then you start to get into law of war territory. But I would consider an act of war only something that entitles you to use force in response.
1: So would something like that be if a state actor shut down parts of the U.S. power grid, for example? Is that what we're talking about?
2: I think, I think there you get a lot closer to something that might be considered an act of war.
1: Does the U.S. have rules of engagement in regards to cyber warfare?
2: It has been reported that there are such rules of engagement. I need to be a little careful here because I'm not entirely comfortable right now that I know what is classified and what is unclassified. But I think you can assume that this is, this is something to which the Department of Defense and the Department of State and the Department of Justice and others have devoted a lot of attention to thinking about what can and cannot be done.
1: Okay. With that, I'd like to shift to a discussion about the issue of encryption, uh, which is in the news, it seems, almost every day and is in the news again today with the discussion of possibly a Republican Senator Cotton going to lead the CIA if Rex Tillerson leaves the State Department and Director Pompeo takes his place. But with that... Um, back in 1999, you testified in front of the Senate as the Principal Associate Deputy Attorney General of the DOJ on the topic of encryption. And I want to get your perspective over the nearly 20 years that have passed since then. At the time in 1999, you said that you found that tech companies were open to creative solutions to a version of encryption that took national security and law enforcement into account. However, if we fast forward to 2015 and the San Bernardino shooting, we see that the tech industry and the FBI uh, are not getting along in regards to the issue of encryption and whether or not, even with a warrant, particular tech companies would unlock a phone or a program. So I guess what I'm curious about is from your perspective, what's happened uh, in these past almost 20 years where we see the DOJ's initial conversations with tech leaders as quite positive and now they seem to be quite adversarial?
2: Well, I guess I'd begin by saying that uh, while I don't specifically recall my 1999 testimony, um, I think that my comments there may have been uh, aspirational and encouraging rather than a realistic description of the ongoing situation. I think that uh, then as now, it's my view that any way of dealing with the encryption problem is going to require cooperation. Between tech companies and the government, uh, and that uh, my remarks there may have been uh, as a, intended as a way of encouraging that rather than as a cold hearted description of reality. Uh, having said that, um, I do not think there has been an improvement in the overall uh, temperature since then, um, and it, it was not only the San Bernardino shooting, but there has been uh, ever since uh, Director Comey at the FBI several years ago started talking about the problem that he called going dark, which is how he characterized the spread of encryption that law enforcement was unable to decrypt. Um, he has been talking about the need to find a solution, and there has been a large portion of the tech and privacy company that has taken the position that there is no solution possible here because any any way of providing access to the government would uh, impermissibly weaken encryption. For the benefit of the people, uh, and so there's not, a, uh, to this date, the kind of engagement that I was talking about in 1999. I think another factor that, play, that came into play was that in the wake of the material uh, that Edward Snowden leaked, um, the tech community, I think, felt that they were burned by prior cooperation with the government, and it, and it uh, I think, led to a feeling that they were less willing to cooperate for fear of being burned again.
1: So maybe for background for our listeners, can you give a little bit of perspective on what your concerns are from a law enforcement and uh, national security perspective uh, beyond just Comey's statement about going dark?
2: Well, I think the concerns are that, uh, on the one hand, encryption is a vital way to deal with the the first problem we were talking about, the cybersecurity problem. Um, One of the steps that can be taken to protect information is to have it encrypted so that even if somebody steals it, all they get is gibberish. So I think the federal government has long been in the position of encouraging encryption the question is is it going to be encryption where if the government gets a warrant or has lawful authority to access communications it has the ability to undo the encryption for those purposes under appropriate legal authority and i think the the concern right now is that there is an increasing spread of the use of encryption that the government cannot go through i think the Manhattan District Attorney has said that they have several hundred cases where they have unbreakable encryption. And I think Director Ray of the FBI uh, recently testified that they, there were several thousand devices that had been sent to them that were encrypted and that, they, and that couldn't be decrypted. So I think we just have to recognize that the benefits of encryption come with a substantial cost to individual and national security.
1: Do you know if those comments made by current FBI director, Ray, in regards to the phones that they've received that are encrypted have uh, stopped those investigations dead in the tracks or do they just uh, require more creative problem solving on the part of law enforcement?
2: I don't know the answer to that.
1: Okay. Um, And and then you also mentioned that recently we've seen this, the increased use of encryption uh, across platforms. And I think, from my perspective, we saw a lot of that happen after uh, the Snowden leaks, when people got more insight than they ever had before into the power of the U.S. government to track digital communications. Do you think, uh, in some ways, that this proliferation of encryption is a reaction to the government's actions as shown by the Snowden leaks?
2: I don't know. I I know there are a number of people who believe that. The problem, of course, is, it, this was a trend that was beginning before Snowden, and we don't know what would have happened without Snowden. Um, my guess is we probably would have seen the same kind of growth in encryption anyway, but it's, it's a counterfactual. You can't really tell.
1: And so it seems that, at least at the moment, that uh, in hearing that you talk about it, that both the government and tech as an industry are kind of at odds to the point that they're not able to come to the table and discuss this uh, at the moment, what do you think is the right outcome of this debate? Uh, Can strong encryption uh, satisfy concerns that you have from a national security and law enforcement perspective, or are we just going to have this loggerheads uh, for the foreseeable future?
2: The answer to that is, I don't know. I would like to see some way to find a solution that provides the benefits of encryption to everybody, provide law enforcement access under appropriate legal authority at a manageable risk. It's the same thing we were talking about with cybersecurity. Can the risk be managed? Mm -hmm. But beyond that sort of general proposition, I think the uh, issue gets far too technical for me to offer any specific solution. I'm not a computer scientist. Um, And I suspect that if there are solutions to be found, they might be very different depending upon whether you're talking about communications or stored data, and they may be different even from platform to platform. Um, I would just hope that there was a willingness on everybody to sit down quietly and talk. And maybe, maybe these conversations are going on behind the scenes now, I don't know that. But, but that seems to me to be the only way to find a solution.
1: Do you use uh, encrypted uh, services and platforms now in your practice?
2: Um, to tell the truth, I am not specifically aware, I've only been at Morrison & Forrester for a couple of months, so I'm not aware of what the firm does. I know that uh, I see references to encryption that pop up periodically, but I'd be, I'd be loath to try to characterize what we do because I'd probably get it wrong.
1: No problem. I'm curious, there is a debate going on in the legal ethics community about whether or not there is an obligation to a client to encrypt Uh, communications, attorney-client communications. I'm curious if you have any thoughts on that particular debate that's going on right now.
2: I I think the general rule is that um, a lawyer has to take reasonable precautions to protect client confidences. And there are certain sorts of things that you probably ought to uh, provide maximum protection to. Um, But I think that's going to be really uh, a matter for discussion between the lawyer and the client.
1: And then I want to get some perspective on uh, the practice of law uh, through the career that you have had. It's an impressive career, both in and outside of government, where you've tackled, as we've already discussed, a variety of very difficult uh, and challenging issues. In your opening statement to the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence during your confirmation hearing to become uh, the general counsel for the Office of the Director of National Intelligence during the Obama administration, you talked about the philosophy that your father, who was also a lawyer, instilled in you. I should also note that you were unanimously confirmed after after these statements in that process. But you said at the time, quote, he made me conscious from a young age of the lawyer's broad responsibilities both to ensure that justice is done in the individual case and towards the improvement of society on a whole. Later in the same statement, you discussed that government lawyers must embody a duality that represents the client's needs and what's best for the public. I'm curious to know How did your experiences as a government lawyer, both in the DOJ and uh, with the director of national intelligence, challenge these notions that you talked about in your
2: confirmation hearing? So I have always been of the view that the training that a lawyer gets, the kinds of thinking that lawyers are trained to do, is useful not only for legal analysis, but for the analysis of non-legal problems as well. And I've always uh, viewed it as my job as a government lawyer to not only advise my client as to what is legal and what is not legal, but also to bring to bear the perspective that my legal training brings on the sort of policy issues underlying that. I have viewed that as part of the lawyer's job, and I've been fortunate that the people for whom I've worked have accepted that from me. It, it's important, I think it's critical, that a lawyer who does that make very clear when you're offering legal views and when you're offering non-legal views. As as one of my deputies put it, um, you want to be able to tell your client that what they're doing is lawful but awful. Um, but you need to say here's my legal analysis, here's what the law allows you to do, but have you also thought about what this is going to look like on the front page of the Washington Post, how this plays out over the long run, what happens if this happens? Um, And as I said, I've been fortunate that the clients for whom I've worked have always accepted that from me and valued my advice.
1: Can you speak to a particular experience that tested this, the spirit, both of the duality that you just talked about, as well as the philosophy that your father uh, built into you from a young age.
2: Sure. Although I I think they're slightly different things. Um, What I was talking about with my dad, I think, was that he um, uh, combined public service at a very different level than I was doing, but community service in a variety of ways with the private practice of law. And he, he recognized an obligation to give back to the community, which he did both by serving in the village government and by helping a variety of charitable institutions uh, in the community. And so where I think my, my dad's uh, example comes up is in the fact that I have spent about half my career in private practice and half of it in the public sector. Um, the the other part of it, the, the fact that the government lawyer has to keep the public interest in mind as well, um, I guess the, the most obvious example of that, from my perspective, would be what happened in the wake of the Snowden leaks, um, because I felt very strongly, uh, and I advised uh, Director Clapper at that point, uh, who completely agreed with me, that um, the intelligence community needed to be a lot more transparent about its activities than it has been. Um, Intelligence agencies, of necessity, have to do a great deal of their work in secret. And there is no question but that a lot of information has to remain secret. If you uh, publish a list every week of which uh, foreign leaders' phones you're tapping, um, you're not going to be able to uh, operate very effectively. But it was, I think, critical. After Snowden, to be much more forthcoming about the legal bases for what the intelligence community does, the extent of oversight and regulation, how the intelligence community interpreted these legal authorities, and things like that, and this was something that met with some resistance from the intelligence agencies because it was it was contrary to their way of doing business. Um, but uh, I was able, and I, fort- I was fortunate enough to have the backing of. Director Clapper, and the White House in this regard, um, to push them to a greater degree of disclosure, which I think ultimately benefited both the intelligence agencies themselves, but more importantly, the public. I think the public has a much better knowledge of intelligence activities now than it did before.
1: So would you say that the Snowden disclosures, I I, I can't tell from the way that you're talking, did the Snowden disclosures leave uh, the U.S. government and the security agency specifically better off or worse off?
2: No, no, definitely worse off because Snowden went far beyond disclosing the kind of policy things that I was talking about and disclosed a great deal of specific information that has caused tremendous damage to our national security in a variety of ways.
1: What do you think should happen to him? The Snowden story clearly has not... Uh, fully come to a close yet.
2: I think that he should come back and face the music.
1: And and, uh, a criminal trial?
2: Absolutely. Uh, Or, well, frankly, uh, given what he's said so far, he should come back, he should plead guilty, and then he should argue to the court as to why he doesn't deserve a lengthy jail sentence. And the government will presumably argue that he does, and a judge will make the decision.
1: One thing I'm curious about, uh, you mentioned that the security agencies uh, were not being forward enough Uh, with what it was that they were doing uh, to the American people, of which that they could actually tell the American people. Um, Right. I wonder what, in your mind, would have motivated the security agencies to be forward about that but for the Snowden disclosures.
2: Um, I guess I don't know the answer to that question. There was um, generally a belief that um, disclosing this sort of information would necessarily damage national security. Um, And, you know, that is something that the intelligence agencies feel very strongly about. Their job is to protect the American people, and they want to continue to have the tools to do that. If we knew then what we knew now, um, there might have been a greater willingness to disclose.
1: All right. Uh, With all that we've talked about, I'm sure. And now that you're in private practice, you're following a variety of issues that have both touched on our conversation today and other issues. I'm curious what you think the most interesting legal issue is right now in the U.S.
2: Well, I've obviously got a a particular perspective on this. It, this is a little bit like the uh, the parable about the blind man and the elephant. Um, I've been working in, in privacy and national security for a number of years. And so for me, That's where the most interesting legal issues lie, and I think in particular, um, the application of constitutional provisions that were developed in the last century to the new uh, digital and internet environment and how that's going to play out, and there was was just a, a significant case in that regard argued in the Supreme Court this week. The Carpenter case? The Carpenter case. There's another case that's coming up at the Supreme Court later this year, the Microsoft case involving whether the government in the United States can compel Microsoft to produce here information that it stores on a server in Ireland. So I think there there is litigation in Europe um, about uh, privacy rights in the digital age. So I think those, to me, are the most interesting uh, areas of legal interest right now.
1: And to, to shift a little bit as we wrap up, Um, You've been highly involved in American Bar Association committees over your career, both as the vice chair of the criminal justice section, as well as a member of the Standing Committee on Law and National Security. I'm just curious to know, what role have these positions played in your career? And can you speak to a particular instance where the committee you were on, you feel like made a difference on a particular legal or policy issue?
2: Well, I don't know that I can say Specify an individual issue but I'll give you one example the the criminal justice section has for many years had a dialogue with the deputy attorney general's office about criminal justice policy issues which is an opportunity for the bar and the Department of Justice to exchange views and that's covered a variety of issues over the years sentencing issues Um, issues about uh, the applications of the rules of ethics to government prosecutors. And I think that this is a a valuable institutional dialogue um, that has uh, produced a greater degree of understanding between the two sides.
1: Great. Well, I want to thank you again for taking the time today to speak with us.
2: Thanks for giving me the opportunity.
1: Absolutely. A fantastic conversation. And thank you again, Bob. Sure. This is Jason Tachet for the Legal Rebels Trailblazers podcast for the ABA Journal, signing off.
0: If you'd like more information about today's show, please visit legalrebels.com, legaltalknetwork.com, subscribe via iTunes and RSS, find both the ABA Journal and Legal Talk Network on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn.